Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth and Element FM. I am your host, David Moses, and you are listening on 106.5 in Toronto or 95.7 in Ottawa. We thank you for joining us this morning. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app, and if you've downloaded that app, or if you haven't, you could download it and you can type in 95.7. E-L-M-N-T-F-M or 106.5 E-L-M-N-T-F-M and you can listen anywhere across the country on your app uh, or rather on your device of choice. You could also be listening on our website anywhere around the world. So welcome for joining us this morning. We have a couple of guests in with us today. So the first half of the hour is going to be speaking with Mr. Tom Hooper. He is a historian at York University and uh, we're going to be talking about the LGBTQ loony, that's where we're going to start, and we're going to launch into some things from that. And coming at the b- bottom of the hour, 11.30, we'll have uh, Kurt Dunn, and we're going to be talking to him about his uh, play, The Knitting Pilgrim. So stay tuned for that coming up at 11.30. But right now, I would like to welcome historian Tom Hooper to the program. Tom, welcome, and, and thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me here. And as we were saying, uh, you're, you're actually involved uh, with York University, my old school. So again, we're, we're launching this topic with the idea that, that you wanted to talk about this LGBTQ loony and the things we, you know, associated with that. But before we get into that, because it goes back to the, uh, the criminal code reform of 1969. Yeah. So that's going back a little bit of time. And we want to set that up a little bit for people, if you don't mind. So how can you bring us up to date in terms of this criminal code from 1969 into the present? Um, yeah, the so in 1969, uh, and this is what's being celebrated on the loony, mm. is this supposed decriminalization of yes. homosexuality in Canada. Yes. Now, this reform stemmed from a Supreme Court case that came down in 1967 against Everett George Clippert. Okay. And Clippert was convicted for multiple counts of the crime called gross indecency. Now, gross indecency was part of the original 1892 criminal code, and that was sort of the main law that was used to criminalize um, homosexual acts. Mm. So... When Clippert was convicted of multiple uh, offenses for gross indecency, the court also declared him a dangerous sexual offender. Right. And as a result of that declaration, uh, he could be put in prison indefinitely. Yeah. So when that decision came down and the, the Supreme Court upheld that declaration of him being a dangerous sexual offender, uh, there was sort of this massive outrage uh, all, all across Canadian society primarily in the media. So there are all these media reports and media stories coming out that were suggesting this was unjust and this is not right and this does not represent a modern country, that we would imprison someone simply for this behavior. Mm. And so as a result of that, in particular, Martin O'Malley in the Globe and Mail published an editorial in which he said, basically, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. Mm -hmm. And a few weeks after that, the, the Pierre Trudeau, the prime minister at the time, uh, sort of captured that phrase, mm. rebranded it as his own, and made that famous statement in right. December 1967. It was as a result of sort of that court case and the media furor over that that the government, uh, the liberal government of Pierre Trudeau, introduced these limited amendments to gross indecency. Right. Now, the things that you're referring to, you, you can actually see on your website. 
Uh, do you want? Do you have that website handy? You want to hand that out for people in case they're looking yeah. into this further? Yeah. So we put together a, a frequently asked questions, mm. and it's on our Anti Sixty Nine website. So it's www.anti-sixty-nine.ca slash FAQ. Okay. And that will pull up the frequently asked questions. So if they want to get into the the, mm. the details on this, they can yeah, go there. Because we're not certainly not going to be able to cover all of it in, in, in 30 minutes. So, yeah. um, okay. So thank you for explaining that and bringing us up to, to, uh, to, to date on that. And also explaining that dangerous offender, uh, sexual offender, because that is, uh, that's, yeah, with that, with that label, as, as you mentioned, uh, he could be in prison indefinitely for, for that. Yes. So, having said that, um, why why do you you say the decriminalization then is, uh, as you explain, is a myth for this? So, uh, for me, it depends on your definition of decriminalization. Okay. Okay. And uh, what I think is, I hold a common sense definition of decriminalization. Mm. For me, decriminalization would mean a law gets removed. Mm. That did not happen in 1969. Gross indecency remained on the books. Uh, Acts of gay sex remained illegal. Mm. Um, Secondly, if if you're not going to remove a law, at least you need to change the law Mm -hmm. so that it alters the way the law functions. Yes. So uh, basically what they did in 1969 is they followed that principle of the bedrooms of the nation. Mm -hmm. So they allowed you to people to commit the act of gross indecency provided they were in a bedroom completely in private not observed by anybody else mm. only two people mm. well that merely recognized the obvious right. that's not where uh, homosexual acts were policed generally leading up to 1969 mm. um, and it's not the way we were policed after 1969 Right, because you're private and public. If something became public or in a, in a public area or something of that nature, that's where they, they were kind of drawing the line with that. Is that? Yeah, but it, we're also talking about um, secluded public spaces. Mm. So if you think about the 1960s, put yourself in the shoes of a gay man, mm. probably closeted, mm. uh, probably having to live his life sort of day by day and doing one thing with his family and his friends and then living this other life. Right. That means for that gay man, the bedroom is not available to him. Mm. The bedroom is a privileged place. Interesting. So he has to go and find partners elsewhere. We're not talking about um, in the middle of Young Street. Okay. (laughs) Right. Right? We're talking about people who are, you know, it's one in the morning Mm. behind the bushes in a park Mm. or they're they're in a parked car. There's a story in 1976 of two young men. Uh, parked in a car at an Edmonton park at five mm. in the morning, right. and they were arrested with gross indecency. Right. So that's the kind of uh, that's how we were always criminalized. Mm. It was never police barging in through the bedroom door. Right, right. So to make it legal to do something that our community was doing, I mean, there's yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, um, didn't really change the way the law functioned. Right. As a result of that, and this is my third point on decriminalization. The number of people arrested and who face criminal sanction should go down with decriminalization. Yes. But that's the exact opposite. Right. The number of people who were criminalized yes. went through the roof. Which is very interesting. And that's and, and why do you think that happened? What what happened with policing? Yeah, um, so police 
1968, when the government was considering these changes, mm. the, the National Police Association came out and said, we're totally against this. Mm. The chief of police in Toronto said, you know, children have, uh, you know, they've had their lives ruined as a result of just talking to someone who's homosexual. Mm. So that was the attitude by police. They opposed any kind of reform. Mm. And so I think there was an effort by police after 1969 to sort of remobilize and keep criminalizing us in the places the law yeah. allowed. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not saying this is all on the police because the police take their marching orders from the criminal code. Of course. So if if the government of Pierre Trudeau decide, decided to actually repeal some of these laws, mm. that would have taken um, the pretext away from the mm. police to do a lot of what they did in the 70s and 80s. But it, but it's interesting what you just said there uh, on a couple of fronts. One, you 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 said children, right? So yeah. can we define now what uh, at the time uh, and how things are different with uh, as you point out between heterosexual and homosexual activities and and the and the name and the ages that are, were appropriate for these things. Yeah, that's one of the other things that was enshrined by this 1969 change was this age, this mm. difference in age, mm. and so. Uh, the age that was set for gross indecency in 1969 was 21. Yeah. So you had to be 21 or over in order to commit those crimes. Whereas the age of consent for analogous heterosexual acts, um, similar heterosexual acts, was 14. Yeah. So that was a, a major difference. The reason why they put that in there is because there was this sort of, as I mentioned with the quote from the Toronto police, there was this long-standing attitude that homosexuals were somehow dangerous right. to children. Right. And so by setting the age at 21, the government thought they were, you know, protecting yes. children some way. And there's another interesting fact in there about even though it was supposedly decriminalized uh, and, and they may not be uh, arrested for those, as, as you mentioned, gross indecency, they were now being shifted from the criminal side to uh, mentally... Uh, ill or something of that nature. Yeah, even the even the people who were supportive of the reform in 1969, they weren't saying, okay, we want to be more equal or mm. we want to be more free. No, no, right. it's uh, these people are ill and they need to see psychiatrists and doctors instead right. of police agents. Right. Yeah. yeah, so an interesting point. So I know we wanted to, uh, we, we've talked about gross indecency. There's, there's a lot of other terms that are being used around this as well. Buggery, uh, indecent assault, uh, uh, body house law, vagrancy. Can we briefly describe what these terms mean for people? You know, as as you know, we might be using them a little bit later on. This is one of the big parts of the myths of 1969. I think a lot of people think that there was some law against specifically homosexuality, mm. uh, and that was repealed. That's that's a complete myth. There was never a specific law against homosexuality. Instead, there were a whole bunch of laws that were used. So gross indecency was one of the main ones. Mm -hmm. But there were all these other, you know, 19th century relics right. that were mobilized against our community. And the reason I say they're 19th century relics is because they had this vague language of mm. indecency, right. right? And it's like, well, what does that mean? Mm. Even, you know, legal scholars all through the 50s and 60s were saying, this needs to be defined. Mm. You know, the, you're just leaving this up to the courts to, to yeah. craft this definition. So we have... Gross indecency, and then there is um, indecent acts, 
and that's another one of these provisions. There's the body house law, and the body house law was initially designed against sex work and prostitution, okay. um, but uh, this was mobilized in the 1970s and 1980s against gay bathhouses. So the gay bathhouse raids of, say, 1981, in which over 300 men were arrested in one night, mm. that was under the pretext of the body house law. Mm. And then there's vagrancy. Mm. So vagrancy was initially designed to sort of clamp down against poor people mm. in 19th century townships. They didn't want people hanging around the town, so they labeled them as a vagrant. You couldn't commit an act of vagrancy. That's not the way the law right. worked. It was you were labeled a yes. vagrant. yes. And you could be labeled a vagrant based on several different behaviors. There mm. were eight at mm. one point. Mm. Um, and one of them was if you had been convicted of gross indecency in, in the yeah. past yeah. and you were found in a public park, you could be charged with vagrancy. Wow. And so that's what started happening in the 1970s, mm. especially mm. as the arrests for gross indecency mm. escalated after 1969. Uh, anybody who had been charged or convicted of that offense who was then later found in a park, mm. even in the middle of the afternoon taking a walk, mm. uh, the cops could stop them and charge them with vagrancy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I should also mention with vagrancy is that the vagrancy was also used against trans people. Yeah. So people who were uh, found by police wearing the quote-unquote wrong uh, clothing, yeah. you know, the clothing yeah. of the wrong right. gender, right. Yes. they could be uh, charged with vagrancy. Yes. That's... Uh... That's really something, isn't it? Okay, so so um, thank you for for describing some of those terms. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, the the raids and the, the the bathhouse and the body house kind of thing that that after sixty nine and this uh, this changing of the law supposedly went through. Uh, you actually show show information on your site about how these things actually increased, and and right up until two thousand and four, you've got information labeled about that. Um, can you can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, the the first raid I was able to find, and this was as a result of my my PhD research on mm. the bathhouse raids in mm-hmm. Toronto. Mm. And really, what I wanted to find out is, you know, how uh, how extensive were these raids? Was this just an isolated incident right. or not? And as you can see from the chart that I've posted on my website, there, uh, this was not an isolated incident. And so the first one I was able to find was actually in 1968. Uh, it was in Toronto, and it was a, a small-ish raid mm. where men were charged not only under the body house law, but also for gross indecency. Mm. And really that, I'm not sure, I don't have the police evidence, but it seems to me that was a test run mm-hmm. uh, of using these other types of laws in these other situations that went beyond the 1969 reform. Mm. And after that initial raid, what we then see is raids that occur in Ottawa and Montreal mm. in the lead up to the 1976 Olympics. There was mm. an effort to, yeah. you know, clean up, clean, up, yeah. clean it up, right? Mm-hmm. And so getting rid of these, these clubs and these bars and these baths was part of that cleanup effort by police in the lead up to the Olympics. Right. Okay. And if you want more, as, uh, as mentioned, you can check that out uh, on uh, Mr. Uh, Tom Hooper's website. Do you want to hand that out again, uh, Tom? Yeah, it's uh, anti-69.ca. Great, thank you. So, if if it's a myth about the this, this then then why did the mint uh, Canadian mint choose to celebrate the coin? Do you think it's not just the mint? I should be fair to the mint. Okay, it's not just them. Um, right. There's a, a through Canadian Heritage, which is a, which is a federal agency. Uh, they've uh, marked this 
as a uh, an anniversary of significance. That's what they call it. Okay. So uh, as a result of that designation, there's a whole bunch of efforts by the federal government to commemorate this. And mm. the Mint simply uh, joined that parade, mm. I guess. Mm. So um, a lot of this started after the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's apology. So mm. on the very day of that apology, he announced $770,000 would be granted to EGAL Canada Human Rights Trust, uh, a, a national LGBTQ2 organization, to create a, a feature film celebrating 1969 mm. uh, and a, a sort of a traveling exhibit. Mm. So they initially had this investment of money to sort of provide for this anniversary, and these other agencies have come on board. Mm. So the Mint decided to do this. Unfortunately, the Mint just went along with this program by the federal government. They didn't do any of their own homework. Mm. So they didn't consult anybody like me or you know, legal scholars mm. or other mm. historians. Um, they just sort of went along right. with it. Right. And so I think that's where they kind of went awry here. Mm. I, worry, um, I worry about this with yeah. the Mint because this is a coin that what I'm arguing is designed to celebrate Pierre Trudeau and the Liberal government in 1969. Mm. I don't like the current Trudeau government using that in that way. I worry mm. about what is the Andrew Shear $5 bill going to look like, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, and, and I don't want the Canadian mint and our currency to mm. be politicized mm. in this way. Mm. So I, I, I have many concerns about the celebration mm. of this myth. But it's not just the Mint. Yeah. Have you reached out to either the government or the Mint in, in, in regard to this? Yeah. The, I, had a, I had a conversation with the Mint okay. a number of weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not their favorite person. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I'm not their favorite person at all. Well, did you at least get to, um, and obviously it sounds like you got to voice your, your own opinion on this and, and speak with someone in, in, in a, a relatively... Uh, upper level of, of the Mint and, and exchange. Uh, yes, I let points. them know my problems with this coin. Mm. Um, I think there was some defensiveness on that front, but mm. at the same time, to their credit, they acknowledged that the consultation part mm. was totally, they totally dropped the ball on that. Right. And I don't think they're ever going to make that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. There's something positive. Something positive came out of this. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, listen, we we uh, we have to take a break in about a minute and a half, but why don't we uh, do that now, and we'll come back and uh, talk further with uh, Tom Hooper, and he is uh, uh, at York University, and he is a historian, and we'll come back and talk more in a moment. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa, and I'd like to uh, just Welcome back, uh, Tom Hooper. He is a professor and, uh, at York University, and uh, we are talking in part about the LGBTQ loony that uh, the Canadian Mint brought out, and that has spurred our conversation in terms of his uh, unhappiness of how and why that coin has been uh, brought out, and we were just talking about that. He's also got a website uh, that if you're interested in finding out more information on this and going into greater detail, uh, you're welcome to do so. And I'm going to ask Tom to hand out that website once more. It's anti-69.ca. Great. So having said that, um, uh, Tom, you wanted to talk about the, the 69 white paper as well um, and ha- how that uh, w- rolled into this. Yeah, so the, the, the loony, which we were talking about before the break, has this... Uh, it has the dates 1969, 2019, and mm. then the word equality mm. on it. Mm. And I take exception to that as it pertains to 1969, because 
as I also mentioned, it wasn't about equality with homosexuality. Right. It was about treating us as though we were mentally ill. Yes. Uh, so to put equality on it doesn't quite match there. But the other problem with equality is that in 1969, as part of these reforms, mm. uh, Pierre Trudeau introduced the White Paper. Yes. Now, the White Paper was a document, a policy document that proposed to eliminate all treaty rights, mm. um, all land claims mm-hmm. for indigenous people across yes. the country. Mm-hmm. This was done under that pretext of equality. We're going to treat everyone equal. We're all Canadians. Mm. So to put 1969 and the word equality on this coin, um, I think is almost offensive to Mm. that history and totally erases that attempt um, to erase uh, or or to destroy Indigenous sovereignty. I should note that as a result of the activism of Indigenous peoples in 1969 Mm -hmm. and 1970, the government uh, backed off yes, the yes. 1969 white yeah. paper. But to put this on a coin without the proper context of that, I think, is uh, a bit of a problem. Mm. Now, of course, uh, mentioning the, the white paper and Indigenous people, uh, there are also, uh, this would be in, including uh, two-spirited people, right? So uh, yes. what to, you deal with that somewhat on your webpage as well. Yes. I mean, if you, it, it, you can't really separate... Uh, two-spirit mm. from indigenous, exactly. right? If, yeah. if, you're, if you're talking about a policy paper that is designed to destroy indigenous sovereignty, indigenous, that's also destroying two-spirit mm. um, history and, and stories and, and identities as well, uh, which, of course, was already a problem. Like two-spirit people have been fighting to reclaim that identity for quite some time now, and uh, it wasn't until 1990 that that term was even... Uh, produced by mm. the indigenous community, they until then they had to accept the European term right. uh, that was at- ascribed to them. So, right. yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, who is left out when uh, we we're looking at uh, celebrating 1969? Yeah, you think about the the two spirit people. Yeah. It's uh, you know first off the top of the list, but also the the crimes that we mentioned: so gross indecency and mm. buggery, the two crimes that were reformed in 1969. Uh, they did not. They were. There are some examples of them being used against lesbians, but mm-hmm. these are, you know, few and far between. Yeah. By by and large, these crimes were targeted against gay men. And right. certainly the conversation in 1969 was about gay men. So lesbians and, and the unique ways that lesbians yes. were regulated yes. get kind of lost in this conversation. Why do you think that is? I think that's that's something. If you're a lesbian listening to this, you're thinking, "Yep, this is this is just how it goes." This is, <laughs> lesbians, uh, you know, the 1970s, 1980s, lesbians were making this argument mm. that everything that the community is doing, every all of the public conversations about homosexuality, it's all about gay men, mm. what their needs are, mm. uh, and so here we go again mm. with this coin. We're celebrating something that generally only speaks to the criminalization of gay men, right? What alternatives to 69 would you choose to celebrate then? So the first national gay and lesbian rights protest occurred on Parliament Hill in mm. 1971. Mm. And 1970, that, that protest in 1971 included gay men, lesbians, trans people. Uh, so it was far more inclusive of our community. Mm. That protest was against 1969. Mm. They, in 1971, they rallied there to say, hey, we need an actual decriminalization right. here. Because that didn't actually fix anything right. in 1969. Right. 
As a result of that protest, all sorts of organizations sprung up across the country mm. uh, inspired by that protest. Mm. So that was actually a turning point for our community. It's based on the actions of our community as opposed to the government. So I would choose to put that on a coin. And the nice thing about celebrating 1971, if we did that in 2021, it would mm. be 50 years celebrating 1971. Mm. It would be 40 years celebrating the 1981 Toronto Bathhouse raids. Mm. What a great coin that would have made. Well, that's a potential that leads into my, my one question I ask about the future, you know, and what you might think of the future and how this might be rectified or corrected and, and moving forward. So that's that's a great way uh, to sort of end on this. What are some of the benefits that of this coin that has been released, though, yeah. that you would say? I mean, I've spent a lot of time sort of uh, <laughs> talking negatively about this coin. And so <laughs> I'm glad you asked this, because I think if you think about the uh, a high school kid, mm. uh, say, in Jason Kenney's Alberta right mm. now mm. or uh, in Doug Ford's Ontario, who gets this coin, uh, maybe he's heard that his gay straight alliance is being destroyed or whatever. Mm. Um this might provide some hope. Right. And I, I really don't want to step in the way of right. that. Like, right. uh, historians are notorious killjoys, <laughs> right? We, we come back at, you know, everything, any, you try to produce a movie that's based on history, you're going to have historians sort of crapping on it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate the, what I'm trying to do is reclaim mm. our history. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want this to all be negative. I think right. 10 years ago, we could not have imagined a coin being produced yeah, in our community. Right. So the fact that they got the history wrong disturbs me as a historian. But as a member of our community, I can look and I can say, yeah, I, I have one of the coins. Mm. Uh, you, know. you know, it's interesting because there's lots of stuff in, in terms of indigenous uh, history and things that are coming out and even books that are written. And, and I, I get a chance to talk to people and they say, you know, I don't, we don't consider this the be-all and end-all. It's just a starting point. It's a point of conversation. Maybe the coin could be used as, as, as that, a, a, a place to start, a place to open the conversation and, and look to and, and, and expand on this further to correct it more in the future. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to use it mm. as. Mm. Uh, I think it's limited, though, because there's three million of these coins. Yeah. I cannot compete with that. And I think ultimately <laughs> sure. the end game here is it's going to sort of further entrench this myth of 1969. Yeah. But um, the coin is here. We're not going to melt them down. Right. So what do we do? Uh, and you're absolutely right. And this is a good talking point. It's got me here on your mm -hmm. show yep. uh, to talk our history. Yep. And I think that's that's produced some good opportunities. And I was just going to say, and that's one of the things we've done. And there's other people, I'm sure, that, in, that want to share this information that are out there, not just yourself. So uh, let's hope that that expands and, and continues to grow. Yes, I, exactly. I'm, I'm not alone. I've got a whole network of uh, academics and scholars that I've joined. So uh, we're all talking about this and hopefully we can continue to talk about it. Excellent. Tom, I want to say uh, thank you for coming in to speak with us today on the program. Really appreciate your time. And uh, do you want to give out that website once more just before we go? Sure. It's anti-69.ca. There you go. If you're interested in finding out more, you can do that. And uh, again, Tom Hooper is a professor at the at York University, and he is teaching law and society for the 2018-19 uh, fall and winter season. And uh, I want to thank him once again for coming in and discussing this with us. Don't go away because we have another live person. By the way, we were talking about that earlier. How we're, you know everybody's talking about they don't can't talk to live people or real people anymore. Well, we're we're real people right here at Element FM. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to welcome Kirk Dunn to the program. Yeah, he is here to talk about a one-person show. 
a multidisciplinary one-person theatrical experience that uses storytelling, image projection, and a one-of-a-kind textile installation called Stitched Glass. Hmm. The show is called The Knitting Pilgrim. Kirk, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. The Knitting Pilgrim. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting title, and I understand your stage is uh, made of, as you mentioned, mentioned, these uh, stained, stitched glass Yeah, yeah. Did you make those? I did. I I made these. They're three tapestries. Okay. They are uh, hand, all hand-knitted, and they are done in the style of stained glass windows. And Mm. so they are the size of stained glass windows. They are each about uh, five feet wide to about nine and a half feet tall. And there are three of them. And they are looking at the commonalities and the conflicts between the three Abrahamic faiths. So between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, They form the sort of the backdrop of the set. And we we use them as projection screens to begin with, and then they are revealed uh, as the show progresses. Well, having uh, heard you say that, <laughs> did you have any issues with bringing, <laughs> bringing these stained glass and putting these three faces on stage together at all? Or well, uh, issues? Hmm, that's a that's an interesting <laughs> question. Yeah, it was. Um, it's quite. It was quite the journey, and that's mm. very much what the, what the play is about. It's I'm sure these, it is. These yeah. two things. It's about um, my journey as an artist, and okay. then also my exploration of of these three faiths, and and trying to get my head around how they relate and how they came to be um, in, in the situations they're in mm. right now. And of course, it, you know, the show is about an hour long, so I, I can only <laughs> only do so much. Of course, but um, the way it, it started for me was I I began as a um, I'm a PK, so I'm a preacher's kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was a Presbyterian minister, mm-hmm. so I grew up in the in the Presbyterian church. And I had always looked at my my faith uh, as something that was very positive. It, my experience of, of being in the church was very positive. My, my father had a very liberal and inclusive theology. So because of the, the fact that my father had a very liberal and inclusive theology, I, I entertained a lot of things, and it was a very um, uh, reassuring experience. Mm. And as I got older and I looked out there, I, I saw that a lot of people didn't have that experience with Christianity. And um, I wondered why why that was happening, and you know what, why things were were bumping up against other things. And then I looked at the other Abrahamic faiths as well, and took a look at the, the similarities. Christianity comes from Judaism, mm-hmm. and of course, um, Islam actually recognizes and and celebrates much of uh, Judaism and Christianity, and then you know builds upon that. And so, then you see the modern day, and particularly after nine eleven where these faiths are seeming to be at, at odds much of the time. And I wonder, how did that happen? And also, is that actually the case? Mm. And so I took a look at these three faiths and looked at the positive aspects of them and how those are related to each other. And they're all about peace. They're all about uh, social justice. And they're all about um, monotheism. They're all about the one God. So they have those essential, that bedrock that they share. And if you talk to anybody in those faiths, they keep, they keep saying, oh, that's what it comes back to, those three things. And yet, in the world right now, we uh, aren't remembering that. We, we just pick out the differences and we, and we hold up the things that are the worst about each faith and paint that faith with that brush. Mm. Uh, and yet, we also um, are unwilling, we're very defensive about our own faiths, course, right? Yeah. So we don't want to ha- have that happen to us, but we will, we will entertain those thoughts about other people. And so yes. I was looking at um, a lot of those, those issues. 
And what did you discover in the process of doing this? What surprises came out at you? I was surprised at uh, just how similar we are and how, again, those those ideas that we're all building on each other. And I think, particularly in speaking to you know, imams and rabbis and ministers, the people who actually um, are, are considered these faiths and looked into them and studied them deeply and, and, and also studied the others as well, they they acknowledge those those differences and those similarities. Um, I, I I don't think I really spoke to anybody who, um, you know, said you know I, we've got it right. We've got a corner on the market. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the people I spoke to said God is is so big. That's that's the divine mystery. And mm-hmm. who am I to say that right. there is only one way to approach that? Right. And I think that's the uh, the the big takeaway there. And just the 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 technical. Uh, things about how we, um, how we we pray, and the idea that the, we all have these structures about the history of prayer. Like when you talk about the when people, a lot of Christians, a lot of um, I would say modern um, Protestant Christians would look at Islam and think, well, there's there's these crazy five prayers a day. Where did that come from? Mm. Well, if you take a look at the Christian Church, of course, <laughs> if there are some parts of the Christian church, like for example, if you were in um, in a monastery or if uh, if you were uh, a nun in a convent, you'd be praying five times a day, exactly those times. It is something that that we all share. And Jews, um, again, they have they have three prayer structures that that um, there are three prayer times that fit nicely into that as well. All these things that are commonalities we have that we forget about mm. and uh, are really good good reminders of how similar we are. When you when you say the prayer aspect. Was there something that you learned beyond the idea of praying to the Creator or praying to God that you saw as a, as a similarity that goes beneath the faith? I guess what I'm saying is almost like a meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the thing that we, uh, I guess, forget about is why we pray at all, mm. um, and we we're praying to yeah, be closer to God, to have that form of meditation. And I, you know, I've heard it said that there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. Like we, there is a, a part of us that needs that that feels like we we yearn we yearn for that, and that is in many ways a a, a personal experience for everyone. Yes, you can certainly uh, find a group of people who are very similar to you and and, and um, approach God in the same way, and you're all fulfilled in the same manner, and and that's wonderful and lovely. And there are many other people out there who are different than you are and uh, do it in a different way, and that's okay. Knitting. Mm. Is that the thread? <laughs> Pardon the pun. There it is. <laughs> little, no, yeah. literally, I'm wondering, there, there's got to be something with this knitting that, that is the thread that pulls this through. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the knitting, that's my, um, I guess, my my form as, mm. a, as an artist, and I... Um, I actually started off uh, life as an actor, mm. and I, I took up uh, knitting <laughs> as a result of a, a touring kids show I did uh, way, way back for the Ontario Women's Directorate. It was about gender gender parity and gender equality. Yeah. So the idea behind this show was that girls could do what boys can do, and boys yeah. could do what girls can right. do. And on this tour, I played a you know a young boy of twelve years old, and I played opposite an actor, um, the lovely Gina Clayton, uh, who played a girl who's twelve years old, and she was a tomboy. And and our relationship was very much well. If you can do that, I can do that. And so we took that relationship outside the play as well. Yeah. So we were on tour and. You know, if I could, uh, if I could go swimming at Lake Superior at seven o'clock in the morning, then so could she. 
So she did that. And, um, and, and I found out she could knit. And I thought, well, she could knit. Mm. I can knit. <laughs> and at that time, uh, I had a girlfriend who had just knit me a sweater. And so I thought uh, the big surprise would be for me to knit her a sweater. Mm. So I did that. And I also had, um, working as an actor, you have all this downtime where you're just sure. sitting around. So mm. the knitting fit into that. I just mm. kept on knitting. I worked as a security guard in the midnight shift to make some money on the side again, mm. lots of time to knit. So the knitting mm. really stuck with me. Yeah. And then um, years later, uh, my wife, Claire, introduced me to the head of the textile museum and who wanted to see my knitting because I was, I was then designing at that point. <laughs> and the head of the textile museum <laughs> took a look at my sweaters and said, well, these are great. But, you know, nobody cares about sweaters. Yeah. What, what you want to do is, is, is make an installation, make, make some art. Yeah. And I did not know what that would be. And then and I was sitting in church um, one day, again, thinking about – it was recently – it was after 9-11 and the faith had gone crazy. Like, What's going on here? And I looked at these stained glass windows and thought, I could knit that. And – I could actually talk, you know, work that into something that is actually topical. Mm. And I thought, so I applied to an arts council and uh, the Ontario Arts Council gave me a grant for that. And I thought, well, I could do that probably in about 10 months, I think. But uh, it took me about 15 years. That's how. To do all three of these. To do all three, yeah. Because they were, they were much bigger sure. and larger than I assumed they would be. And life got in the way. And, sure. Mm-hmm. How does one even approach to do something that large? It, it's a big project just to do even one of those. Yeah. And uh, just physically trying to manipulate that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, it, and I was actually very fortunate because at that point, there was some, you know, the computer, computers were coming along right. at that point. So sure. this was uh, like, um, I guess, or, yeah, or early uh, 2000s. Mm. And I, I found a knitting program where I could, I could take a digital photograph and mm. I could scan this right. in a knitting program and it would graph it in a way that I could knit it. Mm. Uh, now, it wasn't perfect. I'd have to go in and i have to choose every sure. individual color, but at least I could get like a, a vague yep. sort of blurry image mm. of what I wanted, mm. and then I could make that. And then I would divide that into sections, and I'd print up each section in a little sort of small piece or a manageable piece, rather, and uh, knit from that. And mm. then at the end of that, I would sew them all together, and I ended up with this huge tapestry. It's interesting that you have done this, and it's something you picked up from Boys Can, Girls Can, which takes us both back to, so I was surprised to hear you say that play, and of course, you mentioning that I was involved with it. There you go. Um, in the composition end of things. So that's so that's so cool, and it's nice to meet you again in that <laughs> regard, and to hear that from that, you took this thing that you learned. Now, you know, my son knits. Oh, fantastic. And now he did that, and, and, and I hear knitting, because mm-hmm. I don't do it myself. Is, is very good for hand dexterity and, yeah. and those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's excellent for hand-eye coordination. Yes. Um, you know, uh, one of the most famous uh, knitters who nobody realized was a knitter was Jacques Plante, mm. who uh, the, oh, yeah. great, the great uh, right. goalkeeper for mm-hmm. um, the Canadians and later on for the Leafs. Yeah, um, yeah and he and they and they felt that because his experience was was because he was a um, uh, he grew up in a American Catholic family. He was the eldest of, I think, 12 kids. Mm. And part of his job was to mm. help clothe his family by knitting. And so he was knitting from, I think, the age five. And they felt that actually that was the fact that he could knit mm. was, was a big part of his hand-eye coordination mm. as, a, as a goalkeeper. So, And we've heard studies, too, that it's um, it's very good for the brain, sure. brain elasticity, and, um, and it's good for keeping people um, active, and yes. it's good for fighting off... Uh, Alzheimer's and senility and all those sorts of things too. I would think there's also an element going back to this again, uh, meditative yeah. element, uh, mm-hmm. therapeutic. Absolutely, yeah. 
so aside from the physical process of knitting mm-hmm. this and doing this and creating this installation which you have, mm-hmm. what is it that you wanted from that to come out to the audience, to be shared with the audience? Well, I think the uh, one of the things, as you said, happens uh, when when one knits is it. What happens to me is it helps me process what I hear. Uh, I find that when I try to just you know sit and listen to somebody, my mind will wander, mm. right? And mm. stuff happens. But um, usually, the knitting helps me. That takes care of, I guess, that wandering part of my mind, and I'm actually able to hear and listen and follow things so that focus even better. Yeah, focus better. So I, I listen to a lot of um, radio, um, a lot of a lot of news, a lot of uh, talk shows, and. Um, documentaries mm-hmm. and um, podcasts and things of that sort and got a really good idea of all these um, different faiths and, and the way they intersect. And it also helped me keep my mind open to the possibilities. Uh, been also reading a very, very good book called How to Think by Alan Jacobs. And he talks about um, cognitive bias mm. and being aware of looking for the things that you already know that to reinforce the beliefs you already have. Mm. Um, and I think the knitting and that sort of um, meditative state, I think, helped me be aware of that and to just notice, um, is this something that I already thought of or is this something I'm looking for for approval or is this can I open up to this new information and consider it as as something that's possible? And, you know, one of the things, too, that I, I talk, talk about in, in the show, in, in The Knitting Pilgrim, mutually exclusive things can exist at the same time. There is room in the world for paradox. And, in fact, there are a shocking number of them. Mm. And, in fact, the three faiths, in some ways, are an example of, of such a paradox in that they can all be, they can all be right all at the same time. Mm. I, I think that... Um, you know, my experience is with Christianity, but I, I, I do know that this happens in Judaism and Islam as well, is that there, there are some uh, believers who have decided, oh, this is the only way. Mm-hmm. This is the only mm-hmm. path. And that's it, full stop. That's what I believe. And so I stop believe, uh, entertaining other uh, possibilities and I'll move forward with that. Now, the, uh, the thing that's attractive about that is that it's easy. I don't have to sure. think anymore, really. Right. Like now, I, the, it's now simple. It's mm. black and white. I can mm-hmm. just make... Make a uh, decision and move forward. I could get myself into some um, arguments and trouble and have some difficulty that way, but at least thinking-wise, sure. it's all laid out for me. Sure, and uh, that's that's a bit of a, a trap. I think that uh, the world is full of these these paradoxes um, of of things that can be that are deceptively easy or things that can be existing at the same time. And the knitting, uh, strangely, is a is a wonderful medium for that because it is. A deceptively simple medium. It is just knit stitches and purl stitches. It's just there. There are only two things you can really do. You get mm. you can knit or you can purl. Which mm. one are you going to do? Mm. And yet, with those two stitches, you can do an incredible number mm. of things. It's like mm. it's like binary mathematics, where you have a zero and a one, right. and then with those two things, you can program an entire computer. Right. Right. So it's something that's very very simple yep. can can um, end up with some really complicated and advanced results. And knitting is the same sort of thing. It it allows for that. And when you put in um, the use of color in there too, mm. which is very much part of the way I, I work through knitting, I'm all about the color. It, there, There's a, like an infinite range of, of possibilities. And to, again, use other illusions with knitting is when you get up close to it, it looks one way. And then when you step back from it, it looks, you can see different things. So it has both of those attractions. You can see the beauty and the detail 
And then when you step back and take a look at the big picture, you can mm. also see some larger ideas and and be moved by those possibilities as well. As you were talking there, in terms of knitting and the faiths and the topic itself, in terms of what you're trying to discuss or bring out to an audience that could potentially be confrontive, but knitting in itself is a very non-confrontive way. And that set being Mm -hmm. made of those things is a very non-aggressive approach. It's neat how that thread kind of gets woven into this. Well, this is just opening up the door for all kinds of stuff. All kinds of, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, you're absolutely right. It's... um, it's great because when we think about knitting, we think of our grandmothers. Mm. Like how it's mm. how non-threatening can mm. you be? It's, yeah. it's just knitting. Yeah. Like how yeah. take it easy, uh, and 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 yes. So that if that is non-threatening, then maybe that's a great avenue to allow us to talk about these really contentious subjects mm. about religion mm-hmm. and politics, mm-hmm. because that's really what is uh, is going on um, in the world. Is these we've conflated religion and politics, and they're all mixed up together. And um, they're not necessarily the same thing. Mm. And uh, it's uh, you know important for us to uh, have some conversations about that that are not polarized mm. and not aggressive and are, uh, I guess, welcoming and where we can actually consider other points of view. There's one thing that I, I think of when you talk about the past and you talk about having one, you know, this is the way, this is the mm-hmm. true way. And mm-hmm. then you say that, that the people you spoke to now say, oh, we don't have the market cornered on this. But right. that probably is probably a, a thinking that has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is a thinking that's changed over time. And there are also, you know, people out there who who do think that they have, you know, the, the, the corner on the market. And I guess the, the, the challenge for us all is to actually is to have a conversation where we hear each other and and where we can demonstrate that we hear each other, where it's not just, you know, I'm listening is me being quiet while, while you talk so I can you know, prepare my rebuttal and my answer mm-hmm. and you stop talking, I get, to, I get my turn. You know, the listening is, okay, you've spoken and now I need to, to show that I'm truly listening. I need to paraphrase you or I need to say back to you, to your satisfaction, mm. what it was you said. Not my interpretation of it, not the th- not the twist or, of the thing that's going to make give me an in for my argument to put you down. None of that. You'd say exactly what you know you said, mm-hmm. and and I, I think if we actually did that, if we took the time to listen in that way, we would learn so much because that sort of it it enforces a position of empathy. Mm-hmm. Because we spend most of our time not being empathetic and not not spending any time in anybody else's shoes because we're not interested. We're happy where we are and we want to defend our own ground. Mm. Um, and I think that would be a tremendously effective way of arguing and discussing. And, and our, that's really a true argument as opposed to, you know, a, a shouting match or a, just a, a war of words. Mm. A couple of things come to mind. Uh, human flaw entering into this discussion, you know, mm-hmm. the, the fact that, we are flawed. We're yeah, humans. Oh yeah. mm-hmm. um, what do you hope that an audience takes away from this? Well, I think one of the things we see in this in this play are, are, are very much my flaws. <laughs> oh boy! Oh, am I flawed? Oh goodness me! Yeah, and so I, and I'm pretty open about mm, that, and sure. ta- and talking about you know the things I do wrong, mm. and when when I step in it, and when I make a fool of myself, and 
and very much the the fear that I had and have mm. uh, about this project. Because, um, you know, it, it's one thing to, for me to say as, as a Christian, as a Presbyterian, well, here's what I think about Christianity, and mm. here's my experience, and mm. that's what I... Then it's quite another for me to say, now here's what I think about Judaism. <laughs> right, sure. And now here's what I think about Islam. <laughs> like now I'm getting into some some awkward territory. Sure. So, you know, that's really something to be uh, concerned about. I'm very, and I'm very concerned about that. And at the same time... Um, those those perspectives are valuable, and as all of our perspectives on everything mm. it, it, it is valuable, and I, and I think what, hopefully what the, the the play communicates is as I am um, dealing with this fear and as I am dealing with my mistakes and my flaws, I'm nonetheless moving forward in an open and I think what vulnerable and and positive way, and that that we see how that pays off. It's not, you know, the experience of it is not comfortable. Mm -hmm. There's nothing comfortable about mm -hmm. it. But it is, I think, uh, really valuable. And I, I think that's part of the, uh, you know, the, the empathy that we all need to have for one another is that memory, as you point out, that we're, we are all flawed. Like none of us has got this figured out. And, mm -hmm. and it's always changing and we can change. And it's, that's the way things are. So I'm hearing that there's a, obviously an, an element of education involved with this uh, for yourself because you're obviously mm -hmm. learning from doing this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's also an element that the audience is is being exposed to that mm -hmm. is helping them to think about these things. And, and that puts the audience in a vulnerable position because yeah. when you become vulnerable, your audience obviously is in that mm -hmm. same space with you. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the where I'm trying to bring them along and I think uh, and, and hopefully demonstrate to them that it's okay to be vulnerable. Mm. And that uh, some good things can come from that. I think, um, you know, especially in a very, you know, as, as had, I'm a Presbyterian, so that's that is white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. Mm. That's mm. about as wasp as you can get. Yeah, and and that is in our society here in Canada. It's that is a comfortable position. And mm. I remember as a kid, it's it's interesting. You you when you grow up inside a faith, you you're told the way things are, and so you assume assume that's the way it's always been. Like what I know around here, what I've, what you've said to me, it's always, it was always thus. Mm -hmm. And then as you uh, grow older and look around and you see, well, well, that actually came from somewhere. Where did it come from? What's the history of mm -hmm. all that? And if you look far enough back into, into the, the church history, you see a, a pretty messy, oh, yeah. a messy thing, sure. which, you know, is not, it has, bears little resemblance to, to what, you know, uh, the, the process of going to church today is. And I think for an audience today, and certainly a, a Presbyterian audience of the people in, in my church, I think that is one of the uh, aha moments is of, oh, right, you're questioning how all this came about and what place we have in it. Whereas a lot of the times we just go ahead with what we've always done and we're in a routine and we're mm -hmm. not really paying attention to where it came from or where we're going or why we're here or what that means or any of that stuff. So That's where I guess I talk about the, bringing in the human flaw mm -hmm. when you know, even in we hear about uh, is it is it King he King Henry, uh, or one of the kings in England, where he said, mm -hmm. oh, "I don't like that. I'm going to change it." Yes, and, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure if we go back, we we see those changes because of mm -hmm. human nature. Yeah, uh, changing things for the benefit of uh, what they perceive as is maybe a better way, mm -hmm. or you don't know, like this, so yeah. they're going to change this or yeah, separation, yeah. absolutely, uh, yeah. and moving on and, and yeah. adapting of things. So. Yeah, and one of the one of the interesting things for me in in church history is that uh, 
a lot of what certainly in, in the Christian faith, and I think in in, in all, all those faiths, there there are professions of faith. There are mm. things we here's what we believe, mm. and um, in the in the Christian Church, we have uh, the Nicene Creed, which was a creed that was um, uh, sort of hammered out in in Nicaea, and it was um, it basically what happens when the Christian Church was very very young, um, and I believe it was um, it was a Charlemagne who. Um, who decided that he wanted mm. his church to mm. have this creed. And so all the theologians got together and they worked on this thing and they could not agree. Mm. And they eventually, they failed. And he basically said, um, okay, well, you can go back and you can work it out this time or quite literally heads will roll. Mm. And so they went back and literally under the pain of death, they hammered out this this creed that we now say as we we take as fact like this is what we believe and this is obvious we all believe this and this makes sense but back then when they actually wrote the thing not one of them liked it like nobody was happy with it because they all had to give up something right. in order to get something right. so that creed that that we now treat as of course we all believe this mm. when it was um created mm. was <laughs> was something that no nobody actually believed i mean there's like they didn't nobody <laughs> believed all of it right right but right. now now suddenly we think of it as this monolithic mm. thing sure. where um you know, back in the day that's the way it was and that's what i think what happens with i think we forget this too is that when we start saying here's what we believe when we make these creeds and make these declarations, we become more and more fractured, more and more like the things divide further mm. and further as we mm. try to get specific. And that, you know, that I think is uh, one of the challenges we have uh, in our, I think in all of our faiths today. You know, I get, I think that the, the strange thing about all of this is that we have, we have faiths and yet we are also as, as flawed human beings as you rightfully pointed out, we, it's so much easier for us to look at the differences and mm-hmm. to say, to point our finger at someone else and yeah. and not like that person or yeah. not, you know, it's it's so strange. And yet it our is. faiths are there teaching us this is not how we should be. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there's a, there's a, a, a similarity, I think, in the, uh, that it has been pointed out in the, in the human genome, I think. That we as um, as Homo sapiens share, I think about ninety nine percent, or mm. it's higher than that. Mm. Of the, like our genome is all that's we shared ninety nine percent of the same genetic material. Mm. And yet, when you look at people, um, some people would say, "Well, that person is completely different than I am because their skin color is different, mm. or their face, sure. their, their facial features are different, right. or like that's uh, they're so different. Mm. No, they are so the same. Yeah, that's what they are so the same that you can't see it anymore. Right, <laughs> and that's I think what happens to uh, to our faith is mm. we are so the same mm-hmm. that we can't see it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, can't see the forest for the trees, exactly. so to speak. Yeah, it's so close that uh, yeah, we're blinded. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But I have to ask one more thing about your set, okay? And about these, what are they? Five feet wide? The, well, the the the, the knitted part yes. is about five and a half feet wide by nine and a half feet tall. But the entire frame yeah. is about seven, okay. by ten. From, so my first question is weight. <laughs> right. Well, actually, the uh, there the the tapestries are about thirty pounds of of yarn. Okay. And then that's added to another maybe I don't know thirty pounds of uh, felt that mm. is then um, sort of looped into a frame. Mm. So each piece is about I think about sixty pounds. Right. So yeah. 
did you use any have to use any special yarn or anything because of the size? Right. No, I um I started out uh, with my nose snootily in the air and I said I'm only going to use natural fibers and I'm just going <laughs> to do it this way and that way. And then I I started seeing some amazing colors and mm. and I also discovered that um somebody would take copper and, and make it very very thin and then and then spin it in a way that it actually turned into a yarn and wow. I could use that in the right. the knitting and make it look like there was metal pieces, which is handy mm-hmm. because in actual stained glass windows, you of have course. the metal pieces in yep. between the pieces of glass, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the games. And so then I was doing that and and I thought, oh, you know, I will use anything. So <laughs> that's what I do. And I was knitting with, uh, knitting like four or five strands of yarn mm. at once mm. in each stitch. So uh, there's all kinds of yarn in there. Yeah. Well, quite the process alone right there. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, you've got quite quite a lot invested in this from many, from many perspectives. So, Kirk, uh, three performances mm-hmm. coming up from May 11th and May 12th, right? And they're at mm-hmm. that's the Aga Khan Museum's yeah. uh, uh, auditorium. Uh, do you have a time? Yes, on uh, on May 11th, um, Saturday, May 11th, mm-hmm. at 3 p.m. Okay, and then again at 8 p.m. Okay, and then on Sunday, the 12th, at 6 p.m. Okay. And uh, people can find out about tickets or... They can, yes, get in touch with the Aga Khan. Okay. And, or, it, yeah, that would probably be the best way to do it. All right. Um, they can do that on the website, their, yep. via their website, or give them a call. All right. It's been great having you in uh, today. Thank really you so appreciate much. you uh, coming in. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure. All the best. Okay, you too. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zaboken, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech, and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.